Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, again, we thank you for granting us this time together. Even as a few of your saints gather together on a Sunday morning, we, we know that you are honored, you are present. Wherever even a handful are gathered in your name, in sincerity and truth. And so we pray that you will continue to meet us in our worship, give us ears to hear, instruct us, convict us, edify us, continue by your good spirit to transform us. We would see Jesus and we would be conformed to him. That is our longing. Father, meet us in that need. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue our series in the Psalms, I know things have been kind of fragmented with a lot of breaks, and, but I hope that there is some kind of continuity in your mind and, and a sense of of what I'm trying to do with this series. But as, again, the premise of this study, this series, is that the Psalms are, were the center of Israel's worship, composed as songs to be sung, songs of Israel's worship, centered in the fact that Israel was son of God. Israel was by covenant election, by God's uh, instruction, by God's presence with them. They were sons who were to manifest that sonship in the world and be the instrument through which his blessing, the knowledge of God, would come to all the families of the earth. And as the songs of sonship, we've seen, at least my goal is for us to see in the Psalms, that all of the dimensions of Israel's sonship are dealt with on the positive side and on the negative side. Not only Israel's praise, Israel's thanksgiving, Israel's sense of exultation, but even the challenges, the obstacles to faithfulness. The Psalms very much deal with those things and and put them out before the Lord is a part of Israel's worship. And so we looked at uh, lament, which is grounded in, again, a, 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 a falling short of what ought to be. Israel's longing to be what it, it fell short of. And we saw how lament ultimately has an eschatological orientation. It's oriented towards this longing for when things will be, even in Israel's own experience, what God had purpose for them to be, what he had called them to be. And part of that, Lament, part of that angst expressed itself in imprecation, crying out to God to deal with his enemies, to deal with the enmity, the the things that oppose him, that oppose his wisdom, that oppose his goodness, that oppose his people and his kingdom. But one of those things that also the Psalms deal with in terms of an obstacle or a challenge to Israel's faithfulness Uh, was this thing of idolatry. Israel was, throughout its history, above all else, a disobedient, unfaithful, wayward son. For all of their zeal, for all of their commitment, for all of their pledges to be faithful, from Sinai all the way forward, they showed themselves to be an unfaithful people. And at the center of that was this issue of idolatry. 
It's a predominant theme, I would argue probably one of the most predominant themes in the Old Testament, and certainly even in the Psalms. Many Psalms deal with this issue of idolatry, even if it's not named in that specific way. And one such Psalm that I want us to consider today is Psalm 50. It's one of the 12 Psalms that are ascribed to Asaph. It's the only one that isn't in the group of his Psalms. 73 through 83 are Psalms of Asaph, but this one is separated out, and I, don't, I can't give you a reason for that. I think probably because of the way it, it's, its message, it's, it's kind of its thematic emphasis fits more in this particular area. But the, the individuals who compiled the Psalter and arranged it in its various books chose to put this one here. But it is a psalm of Asaph, and as we saw before, Asaph was um, a seer, he was a singer, he was a composer, and under David's instruction, the Levites chose him to be one of the uh, chief singers and musicians in Israel, in fact, the chief. He's named as first among those men who led Israel in its worship. And so it's appropriate that he would have penned uh, many of these songs that found their way into the Psalter. And as we look at Asaph's psalms, some of them are very personal. Uh, Psalm 73 is a good example of that. Some of them are more communal, where, again, he speaks as a representative of the nation, its burdens, its longings. He speaks as a representative. And some of his psalms even have him speaking for Yahweh himself. He acts as a representative, as a mouthpiece, if you will, for the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is one such psalm. Psalm 50 has Asaph speaking not on behalf of Israel, but on behalf of the God of Israel. And specifically in issuing an indictment against the covenant household. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 50. Asaph writes, the mighty one, God, the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before him and it is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is already mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? No, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and then you will give me honor. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes, or even to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, you associate with adulterers, you let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I was just like you. But I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now give careful consideration to this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver, the one who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. 
And to him who orders his way aright, I will display before his sight the salvation, the deliverance of God. The psalm is constructed, uh, or, or the way that it's kind of um, put together, it conveys the idea of a courtroom scene. It has that sense of a courtroom scene, and it's constructed in four basic sections. It has Asaph introducing God as the judge, much as a court representative will uh, you know, call a courtroom to stand and acknowledge when a judge comes in the room. All rise, right, when a judge comes into the room. It's that sort of a thing. Asaph introduces God as the judge who is coming in. And then the second part has God himself giving his own summary indictment. Not particulars, but his summary indictment of the defendants, Israel as the defendants. Basically, he lays out the substance and the basis of his charge against them. And then he goes on in the third part to elaborate and flesh out some of the practical aspects of that culpability. And then the psalm ends with God pronouncing his own assessment, his judgment, and issuing his call of penitence, or if you will, the sentencing, what needs to be done. But then also ending on a note of hope or pledge. And these two main sections, the, the, the two pieces of the indictment, are also kind of related in that God ends each one with a charge. Here's what is true. Here's what you're to do. Here's what is true. Here's what you're to do. So that's kind of the general layout of the psalm. But as I said, it begins with Asaph introducing God. You see this in the first couple of verses, and he introduces God as, first of all, most comprehensively, the almighty sovereign over all creation. But more narrowly and more specifically as the covenant God of Israel. He says the mighty one, God, but the one who is Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken. He is the covenant God of Israel, portrayed as enthroned in Zion. And God is here summoning the earth and the heavens, in other words, the whole created order. When you see those terms together, they're referring to the created order, the heavens, the earth. Takes you back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the two realms of the created order. And God is here summoning the heavens and the earth to stand as witnesses to his judgment of his covenant people. And what is being underscored here, not stated, but but underscored in a kind of tacit way, is the creation's faithfulness in contradistinction to the sons. The creation can stand as a witness to the unfaithfulness of Israel. Because it itself is faithful. The way Isaiah's prophecy begins is, he says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For Yahweh speaks, and what does he say? He says, Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner. A donkey knows its master's manger. But Israel does not know me. It does not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who have acted corruptly. They have abandoned Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. But note again, listen, O heavens, hear, O earth. Join together in testifying with me against my people. You see the same thing in Jeremiah. This is chapter 2. Now, this comes much later in the salvation history before the destruction of Judah. 
But in Jeremiah 2, God says, cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see and send to Kadar and observe closely and see if there is anything ever been done such as this. Has a nation changed its gods when they were not gods at all? But my people have changed their glory. They have exchanged their glory. Me, I am their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, calling again the heavens to stand and be, and be astonished that such a thing could happen. Shudder, be very desolate, declares Yahweh, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn out for themselves cisterns that are broken cisterns that can hold no water. Same sort of idea, calling the creation to stand as witness in God's judgment of his people. And here Asaph also depicts God as coming forth from Zion like a consuming fire. And you know when you have a fire storm, they call it that because it generates a huge amount of wind. If you've seen um, films of the bombing of parts of Europe during World War II, it creates a fire storm, massive winds. And that's the idea here, a raging fire that is, is like a tumultuous tempest surrounding it. And God is described as coming in that way. But the point is to emphasize, again, not his fearsome, awesome nature as such, but his fearsomeness in judgment. That nothing will escape the, the, the opening up and the displaying, the shredding that will be the showing of something for what it is and the accountability of that. The gaze and the insight and the disposing according to truth. God comes in that way, in that fearsomeness that opens up and displays and sets on open or sets before open judgment. And it's also interesting here that God here refers, as he calls the heavens and the earth to gather to him, he also calls Israel to gather to him. He has his witnesses, but he also has the defendants. When the judge is introduced, he now calls the defendants in, and he refers to them as his godly ones. Verse 5, gather my godly ones unto me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And this is really said in a, um, a stinging way. In other words, Israel by covenant was God's godly ones. They were the ones who as his image children, collectively his image son, were to be God in the world. They were to manifest the truth of who he was. They were to be, as it were, God on behalf of the nations. Call my godly ones to me. And so at the outset, God is indicating that the issue is their failure to fulfill their calling as image children. By referring to them that way, he's saying, this is what you are by covenant. This is what I chose you to be. And my indictment of you is going to be in relation to that. Your failure to be my godly ones. So after introducing God in that way, then Asaph allows God to speak. As it were, he becomes the mouthpiece for God to speak. And that is the balance of the psalm from verse 7 all the way to the end is God speaking. Obviously, through Asaph, Asaph composed this as a song to be sung. Not a very happy song, though it ends on a good note. But God is speaking through the balance of the psalm. And he begins by addressing the reason for his indictment, the nature of Israel's offense. And importantly, and I hope that you'll see this as we move on, the fundamental issue in their offense was not their bad conduct. He doesn't begin with that. The issue was not the way they were conducting themselves, but their perspective, how they were thinking about and perceiving their relationship with him. 
And his approach to laying this out before them illumines, it's, it, to me it's very kind of amazing, but it's, it's interesting as well that, that he's presenting this in a way that kind of points to the way the people viewed their relationship with him. He introduces his charge against them by, in a sense, drawing on their sense of their relationship with him and what he knows would be their counterclaim, their pushback. When he brings his charge, they're going to say, wait a minute, that's not us. And he brings his charge against them in that way. He articulates in advance, in effect, the very argument that he knows Israel would offer in its own defense. Effectively this, how can you charge us with covenant violation, violating the covenant, violating our relationship with you? We have demonstrated our faithfulness by our scrupulous observance of your ordinances. See how he begins. Hear, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I don't reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. That's not the issue. Your scrupulousness is not the issue. So don't raise that back to me. Oh, but we, we've done this. Look at God. How can you say these things against us? That's not what my charge is. God answered this unspoken. He speaks the objection that would be in Israel's mouth. That unspoken objection, he addresses it in a way that gets to the very heart of his concern. And that's that Israel's worship, for all of its conscientiousness, is idolatry. That's where I'm going with this. That's why I picked this psalm. For all the scrupulousness and conscientiousness of Israel's worship, what it really amounts to is idolatry. Why do I say that? Because he emphasizes the fact that in bringing their offerings to him all the time, the way they think about that, the way they perceive it, is that they're bringing something to him. They're giving something to him. I shall take no young bulls out of your house, male goats out of your folds. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. They believed that they were doing something for God. They were giving him something. And so they were, in effect, situating themselves at the very center of their worship. See what we're doing for you, God? See, he says, you, you're, you're, you think you're bringing animals out of your flocks. You're bringing things out of your fields. You're bringing what belongs to you and giving it to me. And he says, I'm not taking things out of your fields. I'm not taking from your flocks. It all belongs to me. It all belongs to me. They, in their minds, were doing something for God. And the point is this. Israel's worship was to express their unilateral relationship with God. One directional. He gives, they receive. He gives, they receive. Their worship was to express the truth of that unilateral relationship, but instead they viewed it as human beings always do, as bilateral. All human religion is bilateral. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I bring the sacrifice, you make the wombs fertile. You bring the rains. Right? I read my Bible. God, you bless me. I give my money. Where's my hundredfold? All human religion, because it's, it, it derives from human beings that are centered in themselves, all human religion is bilateral. With the primary direction being from me to the deity. The deity is the instrument by which I realize what I know to be the best outcome, the best circumstance. What is true, what is good, what is right, what is proper. 
And so Yahweh's indictment was this. Here's the substance of his indictment. Whether they were conscious of it or not, the people perceived their offerings as something that they were providing to him, not his gracious provision to them. Not his provision to them. They saw themselves as giving to him gifts out of their flocks, out of their fields. And he says, everything belongs to me. You can't give me anything. Again, that third section of Isaiah that begins with comfort, comfort my people, tell her that her warfare has ended. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. I am he. I am he. Stop looking nervously about you. I am he. I will arise. I look about. I see no man. There's no one who can solve this problem. I will arise. I will put on the helmet of salvation. I will put on the breastplate of righteousness. I will come. And my servant, a redeemer, will come to Zion. And that section, the very end of Isaiah in chapter 66, ends with God saying, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you are going to build for me? What are you going to do for me? Has not my hand made all things and thus they came into being? But this is the one to whom I will look with favor and regard, the one who is broken and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What word? I am he. I will arise. I will do it. I will resolve. I will heal. I will restore. That's the way Isaiah ends his prophecy. And so Israel is not recognizing that in all these things that were their worship, that it was God's provision to them. It wasn't them doing anything for him. There's nothing that he lacks, he says. And even if that were possible, he says, even theoretically, if I needed something, I wouldn't ask you because you don't have anything. It's all mine. Why would I ask you? I don't need anything, but if I did, why would I come to you? He was confronting them with this shocking truth that their worship, whatever they thought it was, and they obviously were, were you know, in the way he frames this, they would say, wait a minute, God, how can you charge us with unfaithfulness? We've been scrupulous in, in these ordinances. He says, the truth is your worship is no different from the ritual practices of the pagans. Why so? In the ancient world, people believed that the gods were not human. They were greater than human beings, but they were somewhat human in the sense that they had needs. And the sacrifices and the offerings that were brought met those needs. These gods were capricious and demanding, and you brought this to them. And in some instances, they were fed through the things you brought, or they were uh, sustained through the things that you brought. They're saying, because that's the way it works in the world, right? The king sits on his throne, and all the worker bees bring everything to him. And ancient worship was viewed that way. The gods need to be taken care of, and that's our duty, and we're taking care of them when we bring our sacrifices and our offerings. And God is saying, that's how you're thinking about me. You too believe that you're providing for some need in me. As he says in the way he puts it here, you think that you're giving me flesh to eat and blood to drink. Again, He says in verse 8, I don't reprove you for your sacrifices. I know you're giving them. Your burnt offerings are always before me. I know you're doing the ordinances. But you think I'm taking a young bull out of your house. You think I'm taking goats out of your folds. But every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. The birds, everything I know, it's all mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because it's all mine. You have nothing to give me. So do you really think I'm eating the flesh of bulls? Do you really think I'm drinking the blood of male goats like the pagans do? You think this is how it works? You think I have needs like the gods of the nations? 
So what is then Israel's obligation? If there's nothing for them to give, if they have nothing, if it's a unilateral relationship, so does that mean that there's nothing that comes from their side towards God? And what comes from their side is not what they can give to him that he needs, but they give to him what they owe him. What they owe him is the acknowledgement and the living into the unilateralness of the relationship. Why do I say that? Look at what he says. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. This idea of vows are are, um, voluntary offerings, you know, this thing of submission, of yielding oneself up to God voluntarily. Pay that. And think again back to Isaiah 66. God says, you want to build me a house. You want to do something for me. You want to give me something to show that you're devoted to me, that you love me. He says, this is the one to whom I will look in that way. The one who is broken and contrite, the one whose hands are open and who trembles, in other words, who is in submission to the truth that I am he. Stop thinking you're doing something. Stop thinking you're contributing something. Stop looking anxiously about you. Who will deliver? Who will deliver? This is what Israel did. Egypt will help us. Babylon will help us. Assyria will help us. Who's going to secure us? Baal will make our wombs fertile. Baal will cause the crops to come in. Always looking about them. Where am I going to find security? Where am I going to find resource? So what they owed him was as their perpetual worship to acknowledge their unilateral relationship with him by offering to him the sacrifices of sincere gratitude and humble dependence. This has a a forward echo of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who mourn, right? They will be filled. This doesn't mean that there was nothing practically wrong in their conduct or behavior, but idolatry was their offense, and that idolatry was expressing itself in all forms of ungodliness. If the worship of God is the bearing of his likeness, the testifying to the truth of him, in other words, godliness, then idolatry manifests itself, it is ungodliness, and it manifests itself in a host of practical ways. And the writer here points to things that Israel could very closely associate with covenant violation, right? Thievery, adultery, speaking evil against your brother. But the very marrow of that ungodliness was a very manifest, overt hubris and hypocrisy. In the face of all of this overt wickedness that God himself points to certain things. And this, doesn't, this isn't like a complete list. He's just saying these things kind of point to how you actually are living as my people. But at the heart of all of that is this arrogance and this hypocrisy that in the face of all of that wickedness, they continue to exult in their status and privilege, their covenant righteousness. We're your people. We bring these offerings. You've chosen us. But Yahweh insists that they had no right to even speak of his covenant, of his Torah. Again, you look at verse 16 and 17. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes, my instruction in my covenant, to even take my covenant in your mouth? And this has very important significance, too, because 
it has two dimensions. Obviously, he's talking about even in relation to one another. The way that you think about and relate and treat one another, how can you even talk about my statutes within the household of Israel? But probably even more significant is taking his covenant in their mouth as witnesses to the nations. In other words, Israel's sonship They were to be heralds and testifiers of the true God and in that way cause the knowledge of God and the blessing of God to go to all the earth's families. Remember how Nathan confronted David with his adultery. He didn't point to the act of adultery. He said, you've given occasion to the Gentiles to blaspheme. You preeminently as God's king, God's son, presiding over the nation that is God's son, you preeminently have the obligation to testify truthfully of Yahweh that the nations would worship him, come to know him and embrace him. But instead, you've caused them to blaspheme. You've joined with them in testifying against God. And that's what he's saying here. You congratulate yourselves and you say, look how faithful we are. And look, we're bringing all the offerings. We're bringing all the sacrifices. See all that we're doing for our God. And he says, you don't even have the right to take my covenant in your mouth. You are false witnesses. You are lying against me to those who are observing you. Even your religious observances are lying against the truth of who I am. Israel had become incorrigible, covenant breakers, violating both dimensions of their covenant obligation. What were those things? When they asked Jesus, what the, remember, what, are the, the two, what is the great commandment of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. This is what Israel's Torah was all about. And Paul went on to say that the obligation of love is what the law is all about. That's why it has its substance in the Messiah himself. And here God is indicting them on both counts. The idolatry of their worship manifesting in their lovelessness towards one another. Their lovelessness towards him is manifesting itself in their lovelessness towards one another. They were actually individuals who had forgotten their God. They had forgotten their God. And they looked at him and they said, you know, they they were oblivious to their own idolatry. They were blinded to their own idolatry. But they assumed that a, a similar sort of blindness characterized God. He said, because I kept silent, you thought I was just like you. You thought I was just like you. Indeed, his silence reinforced their delusion that they were faithful children. God isn't indicting us. God isn't judging us. God isn't bringing enemies against us at the moment. He's silent. Therefore, no news is good news, right? Therefore, God obviously approves of us in the way that we approve of ourselves. They believed that their sacrifices, their, their fastidiousness in sacrifice honored and pleased him. But he says, I kept silent, but no more. No more. And my silence did not in any way suggest ignorance or indifference. I've perceived all too well the way you have reimagined me in your own image. And it will not stand. You have thought I was just like you, and it will not stand. If you don't consider this rightly, if you don't rethink this and reorder things, I'm going to arise and tear you to pieces. And and it's pointing forward to, again, what Moses had warned about all the way back on the plains of Moab before they entered the land in Deuteronomy 29, 28. When you enter the land, if you stray, if you wander, if you follow other gods, if you reinvent me, if you become unfaithful, desolation, captivity, exile are coming upon you. That's what's coming. 
And Moses said, it will come. Remember the song of Moses said, it will come. And this is that same warning. I will tear you to pieces. I will tear you to pieces. So God calls them to repentance, and it needed to be complete, again, addressing both aspects of their offense. With respect to their idolatry, he says, you need to rethink, you need to reorder your relationship according to the truth of this unilateral relationship, which he calls, offer to me sacrifices of thanksgiving. What I want is gratitude, dependence, Humility. And as to their conduct, he says, you need to order your way aright. You need to order your way aright. And consistent with the way that he always dealt with Israel, there was always this note of hope that he attached. Even though judgment was coming, even though desolation was coming, there was always a note of hope. And he ends by saying, To these I shall show the deliverance of God. I will display before the eyes of those who will serve me and know me and live out their lives in this way. Their eyes will see my deliverance. He would meet their gratitude. He would meet their dependence with protection and deliverance. If they would but trust him, if they would submit to his care with thankful hearts, If they would be faithful sons and daughters, he would arise on their behalf and he would show himself to be their savior. That's how the psalm ends. And interestingly, Asaph gives no indication of how the people received his song. We don't know what they made of this song. But this larger scriptural record, as I've hinted at, makes it clear that it would have been largely indifference, if not deaf ears. Because Israel was incorrigibly, inexorably moving away from God. Its whole history was that way. From Egypt forward, it was that way. And eventually, within a short period of time, within a few centuries, uh, Israel will go into captivity and then Judah. This is written during the time of David, and even because of David, the kingdom is split, right? It's fractured, and the fracturing keeps going and keeps going, and the enmity and the alienation and the idolatry keep growing and growing and growing, until finally God sends the northern kingdom into captivity, and then later he sends the southern captivity or the southern kingdom into captivity. And even at the verge of that, in, in, if you read the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was right at the end of that Davidic kingdom, the southern kingdom. Israel's already long since been destroyed in the north. And in Jeremiah, he says, God's indictment of the people. They've watched the northern kingdom be desolated, and they haven't learned. They haven't turned. And God says, from the greatest of them to the least of them, They're all greedy for gain. They're all seeking for themselves. And from the prophets, even all the way to the priests, they all deal deceitfully. They're all filled with deceit. And the priests even heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people, superficially saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And were they ashamed? No. They didn't even know how to blush. This is right at the verge of the destruction of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom, the desolating of all things. And God says, this is still the way it is. So my point is that in spite of this warning, in spite of this indictment, things are going to just keep going south until nothing's left. And in that way, it would seem then that the promise of God To him who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving and orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. But that would never be realized. That would never be seen. But the truth is that Israel, and we know this, here's the application for us. The truth is that Israel would become a faithful son. 
Israel would become a faithful son who did experience this promise of deliverance. Salvation here means deliverance. And that, too, would come in accordance with the unilateral nature of the relationship. God has said, you can't do anything for me. And that being the case, even this promise has to be heard through that grid. I am he. I will do it. I will arise. I will do it. The unilateral relationship would see Israel become a faithful son. For And they didn't know this at that time, how it would play out, but Yahweh was going to arise and he was going to heal Israel by embodying Israel. Isaiah gets at that later on. He would embody Israel in himself so that the promise to Abraham would be realized. God would keep his word in covenant and he would cause Israel to keep its pledge in covenant by embodying Israel in himself. He would cause Israel to become Israel. And he would do so by bearing in himself Israel's disobedience, Israel's idolatry, Israel's brokenness in the person of the messianic son. You are my servant, Israel, and in you I will save the remnant of Israel. But it's not enough that you should be my servant to the sons of Israel. I make you a covenant of the peoples that my salvation would go to the ends of the earth. I make you the covenant of the peoples. The day was coming when Israel's God would fulfill his own name in Jeremiah. Again, he he writes, Behold, the days are coming when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign justly, who will act wisely. He will fill the land with justice and righteousness. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. God would fulfill his own name, the righteous one, the faithful one, the triumphal one in the, in the, in the servant who would come in his name fulfilling both sides of the covenant. So what does this mean then for us? It means that in our case, idolatry is centered in the person of Jesus. If idolatry is any false sense of and false relationship orientation towards interaction with the God who is the true and living God, that true and living God is fully manifest, fully realized in Jesus the Messiah. So all idolatry has Jesus at the center. He's the one in whom the living God is known and worshipped. All idolatry is discerned, measured, and judged in relation to him. So if we would deal with our own propensity to idolatry, if we would deal with our own blind issues, we have to first center it in these questions. Who is Jesus the Messiah? What has he accomplished? What is this all about? What does it mean to know him? What does it mean to be related to him properly? And all other worship, all other devotion, whatever it may be, however sincere, however devout, however observant and meticulous, whatever the exact objects or form, all of it is idolatry. And that's not just for pagans, that's for Christian professors too. Remember when we went through John's epistles, how does 1 John end? The whole epistle is talking about you need to know the Messiah as he is. Anyone who says this is of the Antichrist, right? The Messiah is this. The Messiah is that. This is who Jesus is. And his final statement is, my little children, guard yourselves from idols. You're like, well, why is he now talking about idols? He's been talking about Jesus through this whole thing and knowing him and being configured towards him in truth. Why is he now getting off on this thing of idols? Because that's where idolatry lies, misjudging the Messiah. There is no true knowledge of God. There is no true worship of God that isn't in a right knowledge of in relation to Jesus himself. Crucified, raised, enthroned, glorified, 
manifest in the spirit. Just to close then, let me, let me read a couple things from Paul that helped to make this point. Familiar passages, but maybe not thought of in quite the way that I want us to think about them now. As he writes to the Ephesians, he says this. He, you know, he, he talks about how th- through the Spirit's work in the church, through the gifts, working together, we all grow up in the, in the full knowledge of Christ into being conformed to, full, to him fully attaining to the whole fullness of the stature that belongs to him. And in that way, we won't be infants any longer, tossed and blown about by everything that comes down the pike. But then he says in verse 17, Ephesians 4, And so I say this, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles do, those who don't know Christ, those who are outside of the household of faith, in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Having become callous in their unbelief and their alienation, they've given themselves over to life by the senses. What they see, what they think, what they experience, what they've known sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity, with a constant longing for more. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him. Not heard about him, heard him. You didn't, you've learned him by being taught in him. If you've heard him and been taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus... Not in theology per se, not in Christian doctrine per se, not in church history per se, not in even what the Bible says about this being called God per se, but as all of that is yes and amen in the living, incarnate, crucified, glorified, resurrected Messiah. He's taught you to know him as the truth is in him. And what he's taught you is that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self corrupted with the deceitfulness of its desires, you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put, can keep putting on, growing in this new self, which God has created already in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's what it means to guard against idols. And then as he writes to the Philippians, the way he expresses this concerning himself, a Jew, Paul could very much put himself right in the heart of Psalm 50 and say, that was me, observant, faithful, disciplined, meticulous, knowledgeable. He says, I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone would have a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I would surpass them all. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the Torah, I was a Pharisee, the most knowledgeable, wise, disciplined, devoted sect within Judaism. As to zeal concerning Torah, I persecuted the church, which I saw as an enemy of God's Torah. As to the righteousness, the conformity which, the, which Torah, the law, sets out, I was blameless. But whatever was gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of the Messiah. More than that, I count everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as manure, that I may gain Christ, not some remote, abstract, you know, theological, religious knowledge of, of somebody who died 2,000 years ago, but gaining him, being found in him. Not having a righteousness that derives from my fidelity to Torah, but that which has come through the faithfulness of the Messiah, that which comes from God on the basis of faith in him, that I would know him, 
the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death that I would eventually ultimately attain to the resurrection of the dead. And he said, I haven't already been made complete in this way, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And that means that I forget what's behind. I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, everyone who's wise, everyone who's mature thinks in that way. That's what it means to guard against idols. It doesn't mean get rid of your stuff per se. It doesn't mean stop playing golf per se or whatever. It doesn't mean stop idolizing your wife or your kids or whatever, your job or your house. It doesn't mean that per se. It means grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Messiah. Grow up in Christ. Be conformed to him. Know him. Understand the nature of this relationship. And the things that are the practical exertions of life will take care of themselves. It's all God's creation, and he's given it to us to enjoy. The answer isn't to divest ourselves of the creation. It's to receive it in a unilateral way with thanksgiving and gratitude, dependence, humility. Grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. That's the relationship between sonship and idolatry. That's how we grow in this thing that is the sonship that is ours in Christ. Let's Let's pray. Father, really the answer to this continual pressure of idolatry is very simple. The living of it out is not so simple. It requires conscious, purposeful thought, consideration, prayer, meditation, study. Father, we have to be a meditative people. We have to be a praying people. We have to be a thinking people. We have to be a people who pursue true communion with you. We have to be a people who have hearts and minds set on the truth that we have been raised up and seated in the heavenly places in Jesus. It won't do us any good to go live in a cave or to go live in a monastery or sell all of our stuff and live in a cardboard box. But at the same time, simply dotting I's and crossing T's and going through the motions of doing church or doing this thing called the Christian religion. That's not it either. Father, we would have a vital, living, growing, dynamic faith marked by submission, dependence, humility, gratitude. Father, may we be a people that wrestle with you. Israel's very hallmark, the thing that defined them was that they were the ones, they were Yisrael, they were the ones who had wrestled with you and prevailed because you had caused them to prevail. Out of a place of weakness, drawing on your strength. That was what made Israel Israel, and that is what makes us your renewed Israel in the Messiah. Our triumph is your triumph in us. And Father, may we be content to wrestle with you, to grapple, to struggle, but always trusting, always filled with hope and confidence, never despairing, always knowing that in all things you are he, the Holy One of Israel. You pledge that you would arise, that you would put all things right, that you would come, that you would put on the breastplate, you would put on the helmet. You would do what no human being could. And you did that in the human being, Jesus, the Messiah. And we have our lives hidden with him in you. What is there to fear? What is there to fret? But Father, we can still fall prey to 
the subtleties of idolatry. Even your pledge to renew the heavens and the earth speak to the fact that we so very readily find our security, our hope, our confidence. We find ourselves looking about us for answers. And that fundamental idolatry that's woven into the world as we know it has to be purged. And you will do that. But Father, let us live as those who are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, in every name that is named, in this age and the age to come. You have made him head over all things to the church, and we as the church are the fullness of him who fills all in all. May we serve you and know you and worship you in that way, with open, grateful, eager hands that Christ would be honored in the church and through the church in the world. Amen.